Hi, my name's Paul Kennedy, and I'm a sport reporter for the ABC, and when I'm not listening to the ABC, I listen to Radio Karam. Tune in and enjoy. You're listening to Rowan Pratt Method, and I'm not going to give you an intro because we're changing all the themes. It's not just going to be well-being, performance, lifestyle design, well-being, the works. It's going to be pretty much anything that I find interesting, so we're going to have a range of guests moving forward, and I'll get back to you with an intro. On today's show, we have Steph Robertson, who is a occupational therapist specializing in neurodivergency. Welcome to the show, Steph. Hey, thank you so much. Come a little bit closer. Thank you. So, Steph, you have a really interesting story, and I loved getting into it at the start. I had to cut you off because I wanted you to share it, obviously, <laughs> on the episode. So tell us a little bit about your work. Uh, so as an occupational therapist, I started pretty um, – I guess, typically in a paediatric role, working with all sorts of children with different um, different conditions. And then I, I found a real interest in neurodivergence. And back then, uh, I think autism was a really common diagnosis that children were getting. And we didn't so much talk about the term neurodiversity or neurodivergence back then. Um, but then when my daughter was five, um, she was diagnosed as autistic. And this really opened my door to this world, I suppose, and particularly girls and, and women who are autistic, because again, far less diagnosed, far less known about, I guess, and the presentation of girls and women. Um, and so then I sort of, <laughs> it was the deep dive down that rabbit hole. Um, and yeah, then I sort of explored, you know, just from seeing what I was seeing in my daughter and what I was seeing in, in people that I worked with, I started um, thinking about my own neurodivergence and my own presentation. And so then I went down the path of um, getting myself assessed and, and finding out that I was also autistic. And for me, the whole thing just clicked together. I was wow. like, uh-huh, this is why I belong here. <laughs> Interesting. So how long were you working as an OT before you got diagnosed? Uh, like seven years. Seven years. And yeah. You, so you got drawn into that field and you had a preference for working with neurodivergent individuals. Yeah. Without even being aware that you were neurodivergent. No. That's amazing. I knew that I was different. I'd always felt like that even since I was a child. And I did have a diagnosis of um, complex PTSD and I wondered if that kind of it was almost like that um, adaptive neurodivergence because yeah. obviously we, we do consider that um, some trauma-based responses and mental health conditions do you know fall under the category of neurodivergence. Um, but I think I just had a lot of internalised ableism, like mm. I'm not disabled enough to be autistic. Yeah. And I think this is such a common thing in the community um, among a lot of people where – and it's not even that we mean to think about ourselves that way or do it cognitively, it's just that – Unfortunately, in the past, the way that autism, for example, has been displayed has been, you know, a nonverbal boy who toe walks and likes trains. Like, do you know yeah. what I mean? That's kind of how we've seen it. And so people are like, no, that couldn't be me because there wasn't enough of an understanding. And that's definitely what happened to me. Well, I think most people associate it with movies like Rain Man. Yes, you know, That's exactly. what they expect for the, the typical poster boy of autism. Yeah. And as you said, it's even harder to see in girls because there is some differences between both. Is that correct? Yeah, generally speaking. I mean, obviously there's overlaps and, you know, you will see, I guess – you know, girls who present the way 
typically we expect boys to and vice versa. Like it, it's a complete spectrum yeah. and not even a spectrum. It's kind of just like a, a range of um, characteristics of a processing system and people can have what we can call a splintered skill set. I might get you to swivel this way just because you're on camera. Oh. Just while I'm watching <laughs> so everyone can see you. Hello, everybody. <laughs> just staring yeah. at my back. Um, yeah, so but again, generally speaking – girls seem to have less obvious social barriers um, and seem to be able to mask. We get a lot of this masking in girls where it's an it's an internalised anxiety, it's an internalised sense of not knowing what's going on in the world around them and being able to mimic people around them mm. and, um, yeah, but again... Uh, this has been a bit of a, a generalization, I guess, and a reason why we've spoken about the far fewer females and, and girls that have been diagnosed with autism in the past. Yeah. But in my experience, I think, and once you really like absorb yourself into the neurodivergent community, you see there are so many similarities between boys and girls and, you know, all, all sorts, non-binary, everyone. Um that I think once you can really pick it apart, you see that it's it's the same. It's the same processing system in the brain, obviously, and that's how they come to the diagnostic criteria and stuff. But it just seems to be the way each individual adapts to the environment around them yeah. that gives certain outward behaviours that then leads us to thinking it is or isn't autism or ADHD or something. So Does that make sense? there is an overlap between certain elements with each individual, but the way it manifests and the way that they strategically respond to those issues in the, in the real world based on experience, based on conditioning, et cetera, is different. A hundred percent. Yeah. And that's where we talk about um, autism as like, I don't know if people have seen these, there's this beautiful visual that's been going around and rather than seeing neurodivergence or whatever as like a spectrum or a length of like, high to low functioning and things like that, that, you know, terms we don't use anymore. It's more like a circle and imagine that it's a pie graph and in each section of that pie graph might be language skills, might be social skills, might be um, certain sensory needs, might be anything you can think of that makes up your person and your preferences. And then imagine you could plot dots in each of those sections of the pie graph and some might be close to the middle and some might be close to the outside. And maybe that's your preference or your capacity or your whatever, but it could be, you could be, have amazing language skills and then really, really struggle socially and have a lot of social anxiety, or you could be the opposite. You could be someone who really loves social interaction and that's what you want, but you really struggle with the language processing to be able to engage in that. Wow. And yet these people could be two autistic people, but the splintered skill set is such that it's really hard to narrow down exactly how this presents other than to say that generally uh, it's like a, just a different processing system. Mm. Um, an analogy that just popped into my head one day was the idea of iPhone versus Android, right? So, you know, if a neurodivergent person's an iPhone and a neurotypical person is an Android, that's fine. Like both can do the things. You can, you can use them for whatever you need to use them for. Some prefer one, some prefer another, like whatever. But – if the world is running an Android processing system, the iPhone cannot function. It cannot run its apps in that environment. It needs an environment that is designed 
for its form of processing. And this is where I'm a huge advocate for systemic and environmental change to support the neurodivergent mind and neurodivergent thinkers. Because if you give the right environment and you structure things in a certain way that meets that person's needs, then they are capable of doing all the things someone else is. It's just Mm. that they need the right foundation. Wow. I love the analogy about the pie chart. Mm. I just want to clarify for a lot of people that don't have much experience in this field, when you talked about the differences with each person with it as neurodivergent, talking about the different plots in the continuum, it's obviously not linear, it's the actual pie chart, that sounds very similar to the differences between a neurotypical person. So how do they differ? What is the difference between a neurodivergent person and the differences between the spectrum or range of people that are different as a neurotypical? Because they come in all Mm -hmm. shapes and sizes as well. The normies are out there and there's many different types of them. So Mm -hmm. what is the distinct difference for people that are listening? So I guess I, I feel just from my anecdotal experience that it is a lot more complicated than what I'm about to say. <laughs> but if you were to look at the DSM-5, so the diagnostic manual for diagnosing something like this, to diagnose, and again, we're talking about neurodivergence in general, but if I just take one example, which is like autism as a diagnosis, there needs to be certain deficits across certain areas. So like one of them is like social interaction, stuff like that. One is language processing, which is a really interesting one to dive into, particularly after my diagnosis. Um, that was just my mind was blown after that, the speech section of my di- my um, diagnostic process. Um, and then there is usually some repetitive and ritualistic behaviours <laughs> that occur. Um, I think those are the main three off the top of my head. Can but you basically, expand on the, the wording? Um the speech element because you speak very well. So mm. what do you mean? So this is this is what blew my mind too. Like I was sitting there originally and even with all my work that I have done in this space with kids and, and stuff who are neurodivergent, I was like, oh, I just don't know whether I'm going to get a diagnosis as an autistic person because I'm just not sure about my language, right? And, you know, I'm, I've done a lot of public speaking. I enjoy talking to people <laughs> anyway. And so as I was going through this process with this absolutely wonderful and very experienced speech therapist, she was telling me, she was kind of pointing out the things about my language processing, so particularly how I take in someone else's information and then how I respond to it that were perhaps not neurotypical. So one example was that I will have a train of thought And I will attach myself to that train of thought. And you may discreetly change the conversation a little bit to go in a different direction, but I'll be like stuck on my train and I'll have to get to the end of what I'm saying before I can then catch up with where you might have taken the conversation as a neurotypical person. Yeah. And so people don't often pick up on it. Um, But, you know, I've so many times been accused of speaking too loudly, of having to finish my point before I can like hear someone else's response because either I'll forget or my brain is just attached to my train. Mm. Um, And then just also, I think uh, for me, the subtleties of communication that are nonverbal. So picking up on someone's really discreet cues when they're talking to me, I find it easier to do when I'm not the one speaking and I'm watching you speak. Mm. But when I'm speaking, my brain is attached to my message and it's harder for them for me to pick up on the discreet stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So, That's and I, I didn't even know it about myself until I had someone who was a professional in this area explain it to me. So, how did that? Did she just give you this information as a brain dump, or did you have an interaction <laughs> with her and she observed how yeah. you interacted with her? Exactly like that. Wow. We had an interaction that was very, um, so it was kind of very loosely guided. Yeah. 
Uh, and to be honest, I I haven't I have never seen a professional work as well as she did because I was completely unaware of the things that she was doing within our interaction to test how I would respond. Wow, she's a pro. Uh-huh. I never felt like she was testing me or tricking me or trying to anything. It's just a chat. It's just a chat. Mm. And then at the end she's like gave me feedback. She was like, "Did you notice that you do this or that?" And I was just like, "Yeah, I do that all the time." She's like, "Neurotypicals don't do that." And I was like, "What?" Like, yeah. you know, like thinking about responses. If someone says something to me, I have to formulate a response first and then spit it out. Mm. I'll do it very quickly. But she was like, oh, no, like often neurotypical people can, they can just respond. They don't have to formulate it, plan it first. And I was just like, wait, I'm like double handling this information and other people aren't. Mm. (laughs) Wow. Yeah. That's very interesting. So it was just a very subtle uh, observation from her part. That sounds like, how many sessions did it take you? Uh, So we did, oh, that's a good question. I think there was like. I can't remember. If we, it was all in one day, but I can't remember how if we did it over two sessions and had a break in the middle or something like that. Yeah. yeah. And she was a speech pathologist, was yeah. it? I thought you had to go to paediatricians or is that just for children or what's the go? So uh, a paediatrician, I believe, can diagnose um, like autism, ADHD, neurodivergence. Um, as an adult, obviously, you would see a clinical psychologist. Mm-hmm. So they are the person who gives the formal diagnosis. And then in this case, they will often consult a speech and language therapist because one of the diagnostic criteria for autism in particular is that there is some form of speech and language. Um, I don't even want to call it a deficit, but like there, there's a, a different processing around communication and language. Mm. And so sometimes the psychologist, they can diagnose it themselves, um, but sometimes they just like to have that really specific speech and language assessment. And I think uh, particularly for people like myself who are generally, you know, presenting in the world as, you know, not not outwardly disabled and, and you know, that kind of thing. I think it's, it's just nice to have that confirmation. And for me, I actually found it the most insightful aspect of my diagnostic process because there were things about myself that I kind of knew but I didn't know that wasn't how everyone thought. Yeah. And then also things that I had I just didn't know and to be made aware of that. Uh, has been really empowering. Wow. And how old were you when you got that done, if you don't mind me asking? Uh, 32. I've got lots of questions. So, yes, you are neurodivergent. You've had the diagnosis. Many people out there that would present with similar symptoms that you're talking about, and a neurotypical person might consider that person to be rude, Mm -hmm. not thinking that or not even being aware because they don't look like they have a clear disability. They aren't nonverbal. They don't have these things. They just think they're rude. Yes. So how do people differentiate between someone being actually rude or is just no one rude? They just have a different processing (laughs) system and they're actually not normies. I mean, that is something I don't know we will ever have the answer to. (laughs) Um, I think what's – generally in my experience, and again, um, I I see this a lot with the children that I work with. I find a lot of, um, a lot of neurodivergent adults are masking so well that they've worked out a way to present themselves as not being rude, generally speaking. Um, but I think it's always about, so I always say to people and I say this towards children, but I think it applies to like anyone, just be curious 
Like think about rather than sort of taking something personally straight up and being like, oh, that was rude. If you're like, hang on, was it rude or were they just kind of blunt? Were they just straightforward? Were they just to the point? Mm. Um, And I think also sometimes we don't openly communicate enough with other people. Like what if we just said, oh, that came across a little bit blunt and I just wanted to make sure you know, everything's cool here. And that person might be like, oh, like my bad, I'm really sorry that came across blunt. I just needed to get my point across. And then you have no problem anymore and you don't think it's rude. Obviously we can't really go around being like, hey, that was blunt. Are you autistic? You know, Um, but I do definitely think, and coming back to what I said before about wanting to, to shift societal sort of expectations and norms around things like communication to be more comfortable for neurodivergent people as well within society because I think and you know what while we're on this topic even for people who may not formally be diagnosed as neurodivergent in one way shape or form but who are neurotypical I think the range of preferences and all sorts of things that we have in living our lives is so diverse as a general rule that how cool would it be if social norms we're just a little bit more flexible. Yeah. Like I'm not saying you can go out there and be awful to people, obviously. There's boundaries and everyone deserves respect. But what if it was just okay to say, hey, sorry, I'm not going to make it tonight because I just don't feel up to it. Like not have to make an excuse, not say I'm sick, not say the dog died, not say whatever, which I think is a social thing. We think we have to have an excuse Mm. for our decisions. What if it was okay to just say, I just don't have the energy for this and it wasn't offensive and it wasn't anything against anyone else, but we could just be a bit more open and honest and not have to show up certain ways to fit certain boxes. I completely agree. And that goes for everyone. Expectations are a huge thing that I love discussing. People expect more of the girl at the local coffee shop than they do of themselves. And at the end of the day, you might be having a rough day. Maybe you don't feel up to the commitment that you're 100% invested in the day before, and that should be okay. It shouldn't be like, well, you said you're coming in. It's like consent. You know, it can be taken away if you choose not to. You shouldn't Uh be stuck with that decision. But it doesn't happen. Everyone says, oh, well, it's rude, and then you get dismissed, and people, they take it as a personal offence. Yes, 100%. And what's ironic about that, though, is that often, and, you know, I'm speaking from my own experience here, but I know this has been um, an experience from the collective, is that uh, it's quite common that people who are neurodivergent will tend to overly personalise situations and think it is about them. So not only can we sometimes be maybe blunt or to the point or come across rude, but then if someone else does the exact same thing, it's quite often common that we will be like, oh, my God, it's my fault. I did it. It's me. Yeah. I'm bad. Yeah. What did I do wrong? I'm so sorry. Um, and I think, you know, there is an irony there, right, that it's like um, the perception of the experiences is so individualized that we can behave in one way and feel one way about it but then perceive behavior that may be very similar mm. and respond a different way to it. Yeah. And this is something that I've been working out for myself too because I will 100% think it's my fault. So is that where <laughs> the issues with social interaction and connections and things are a struggle with yes. people that are neurodivergent? Yes. And there's this this beautiful um, topic that's been coming up lately which is called the double empathy problem mm. is what it's been coined. And it's this idea that if you have a neurotypical person and a neurodivergent person communicating with each other, there may be barriers, right? And this is kind of a simple way of explaining it. But basically we kind of 
expect that the problem is on the neurodivergent person, Mm. right? So it's like you're the one who's different, so you should change. But what if it was just a case of the neurotypical person learning the neurodivergent way? Because when two neurodivergent people communicate, there's often not the same problem. Yeah. So it's like you put the same processing system together and it works, right? But then you've got two systems trying to mesh together and it doesn't quite work as well. Why is one of them the wrong one? Yes, it may not be as um, as common like or, or occurring as much in the population, but what if it was like both ways had to give a little in yeah. order to reach a mutual connection? I think that's one of the key elements of cultivating diversity yes. in any environment, having that understanding and holding space and recognising that the way that they perceive things might be different to the other person's Mm -hmm. and holding space for that person and allowing that difference. And that leads to better outcomes and more success anyway. I guess we are moving in that direction in a lot of fields, uh, even looking at sexual orientation, Mm -hmm. race, all these other elements, we have been moving towards that. But in terms of neurodivergency, I think it hasn't really been looked at. It's becoming a lot more popular now though. What are your thoughts on that? It's huge now. There's so many ADHD groups, autistic groups, awareness pages and things. Everyone is reading memes and reels and they're like, that's me. You know, is everyone that's reading those signs that have those symptoms, are they neurodivergent? Could it be another reason? What are your thoughts? I mean, I think our environments play such a huge role, like such a huge role in how we show up. And obviously with a lot of conditions that are under – like the DSM, for example, like mental health conditions and these, you know, other neurological type stuff. It's based on behaviours. That's how they assess it, right? How do you behave on the outside? And that's why some people go undiagnosed even though their neurology might be a certain way. But if they're masking well enough, Mm. they're not going to get a diagnosis. Now the same can go the other way. Like if you're someone who is – inattentive generally, right? Like you forget things or you, you know, fumble over things or you struggle to pay attention to something that's you're not interested in. That doesn't necessarily mean you have ADHD. You, that's fairly normal. Intrinsic motivators for humans are a huge thing. And if you're not intrinsically motivated by something, so you don't like the idea of it from the inside out, it's going to be way harder to actually attend to it than if you do like it. Where ADHD, for example, is different heard this analogy recently and I absolutely loved it because it explained how it works. If you imagine that there are roads, like a massive intersection in the brain and there's cars going all which ways. And then there is part of our frontal cortex that is the traffic manager. And he sits there and he lets one lot go and lets another lot go. And then he stops everyone from smashing into each other. In ADHD, generally, that part of the brain is underactive, which is why we give stimulants by the way of like Ritalin and things like that to people with ADHD, which doesn't seem to make sense because that's like the hyperactive. Why are you giving them stimulants? It's because we're stimulating the traffic manager, not the cars. Ah. So when he's asleep, the cars are just going everywhere and it's chaos. And that can present in the body, moving around all of the time, jumping from thing to thing, not being able to attend, not being out of control impulses, things like that. Then we give the stimulant to the traffic controller. He comes back online. He controls the traffic again. And we're able to get more clarity of mind, which is what people often express that they feel if they have ADHD and they are given the correct medication. Mm. So I guess the thing for ADHD is while there's no way of testing specifically, like a blood test or anything else like that we can do, um, 
that that'll be the difference, right? Is that that particular part of the brain that has, you know, controls impulse control and often decision-making and attention is underactive. And that is just like how they are. If anyone wants to learn more about ADHD specifically, I 110% um, suggest reading a book called Scattered Minds by Gabor Mate. It is just brilliant. He is an MD who has ADHD himself and so do two of his children. I think it's two of them. And it's just so beautifully insightful if you want to know more. I think it was him who gave that analogy that I just shared. Yeah, that was great. Mm. You were talking about mimicking Mm -hmm. and, you know, it comes up in a lot of themes where people are looking to survive and fit into their environment. Can you give us some examples of that, how a neurodivergent person might be mimicking behaviour they've observed, maybe from family members, maybe in their workplace, in school, whatever, to be able to put that mask on and go through undetected? Yes. Um, I think probably the best way that I can share about this is to give my own experience. But I see very similar things all the time with the children that I work with. Um, But for me, I distinctly remember... I think I was in year seven and I remember watching some other girls across the room and they were communicating and they weren't using words, but they seemed to be understanding because they were laughing at each other. And I was so confused. I was like, what is this magic that I am not aware of that people can do? And then I unfortunately got really bullied in, in early high school. And I remember deciding I can't be me anymore. I have to try and be the way they want me to be. And so I I vividly remember mimicking other behaviours, like, oh, they kind of stand like this or they sit like this or they use their voices in this way. Um, Even facial expressions. I learnt how to express my face in certain ways to be animated and to respond to people. And then it became second nature completely. And I almost created an entire identity that fit in with a social environment that I needed to be a part of. And I think what was crazy for me was that I was so internally disrupted. So if we were to think about fight or flight versus fawn or freeze, my one was the kind of fawn or freeze. It was like chameleon, hold all of the garbage inside. So it's really uncomfortable. And then that leads into, you know, that whole like self hatred and discomfort piece that often comes up for people where they internalize it. And, but outwardly, they're fine. They're great. They're kicking goals. They've got friends. They're doing school. They're like, it's, yeah. it's fantastic. But the piece for me that always comes back is I didn't get it. And it's the only way I can explain it from my own perspective is I was like, yeah, I'm doing it, but I don't get it and I don't feel good about it. <laughs> and yeah. then, So it was a performance. Yes, always. And that's exhausting, right? Yeah. Like exhausting. And now I see it in kids a lot of the time. Perfect example is you'll have that child where school says, no, they're doing great at school. They're doing all their work. Everything's fantastic. And then they go home to mum and dad and they completely melt down. There is no spoons left. They're, they have no capacity. And I don't know if you know the spoons analogy. You know, it was no. originally – I love analogies, don't I? Yeah, fire. I like is that it. an autistic thing? <laughs> um, <laughs> but it's it was coined by someone, I believe, originally who had chronic fatigue syndrome. And she was basically saying that we're – a normal person or a person who isn't unwell has like 20 spoons across the day. She's like, I only have 10. So if having a shower takes three and dinner takes four and whatever, I can't do a shower and vacuum the house on the same day because I don't have enough spoons for that, whereas someone else might do. And it was this idea about conserving energy and using Mm. just spoons as a measurement of energy. So if you've got a child who is neurodivergent and they have 20 spoons and some other child has 20 spoons, everyone's got 20 spoons. It's great. But in order for their neurological processing system to get through the same steps of the day, they have to use more spoons for each step. 
So where another child might only need a couple of spoons to get through maths, this child's struggling with it, right? So they've put five into that. And then recess and lunch are more difficult too because that social element requires more processing. They've got to like take it in, think about it, then spit something out. Like I mentioned before, it doesn't come as naturally. So then by the end of the day, there's no spoons left. There's no energy left. So when mum wants to ask, how was your day? Or come and have dinner with the family? Or can you put your socks in the wash? Those demands, there's nothing left for them. And then it leads to complete burnout. And then that meltdown comes in. And this is an example I try to explain to people a lot of the time that that level of masking requires so much energy to show up in that way and not have usually their central nervous system needs met is often a really common component from a sensory perspective. That's obvious, like usually not being met in the environment. Um, Yeah. And then we get that meltdown. Wow. Yeah. That was a great analogy. I can it's put a lot of things in perspective from a lot of people that I can you know, <laughs> consider. Yeah. So in terms of how that's impacted your experience, so mm-hmm. going from having that mask on, performing, spending way too many spoons, then mm-hmm. getting diagnosed, working in the space, how has that impacted how you show up in the world based on is there a time where you are just you is that just you different to how you are the performance staff what is the difference between the two and where do you allow them to step into the world at what times very curious about this yeah so I think for me it took a a long time to work out who I actually was because obviously I had developed this mask at what like 13 years old or whatever and I was 32 so it's more than half of my life I had I had created something else. So um, I did a lot of processing and a lot of therapy and, and have been for a long time, even before I got the diagnosis, because I knew I knew there was something I had to work out. Um, but trying to actually work out who I am. And the biggest thing for me is asking myself really regularly, and I reckon I try to do this about five times a day as I'm going about my day. I do like a body check-in and I'm like, am I actually comfortable right now? Or am I sitting in a way that I think other people want me to sit? Am I talking in a way I think other people want me to talk? Or is this actually how I want to be? And often it's not. And then I go, okay, well, what do I need right now? Do I need like a fiddle toy? And I often have things to fiddle with and I'm always moving my hands or I'm like shaking about. But I started letting myself do those things where before I wasn't even conscious that I was suppressing myself. Mm-hmm. So I started getting curious and just asking my own self and my body, what do you need right now? Like what? What do you need right now? And then can I give myself that? If it was something like I love being outside and I also just love being like alone in a room under a blanket, like just like this little hermit. So sometimes you just got to make time for that though, right? So it's like, okay, well, if I need a hermit, I say to my family, I'm going hermit. And then I just go and do it and everyone accepts it and it's fine because I've learned to advocate that that's something I need. You know, I'll be back in an hour, whatever it might be. Yeah. Um, but it's still a process. I have to say it's still 100% a process. I recently, um, I'm presenting at a conference next weekend and for the first time publicly, I said to the person organizing it, I said, oh, I'm, I'm going to bring someone with me. I'm bringing a support person with me. And I'd never been able to advocate for that for myself before that because of my anxiety around particularly really busy places that are loud with lots of people for me, it's a big trigger. I hate it. Yeah. Um, but I also love my job. So I've got to find that balance, right? I work with people, I work uh, presenting and, you know, all these things. So I was like, where's the happy medium where I can give myself more support in that environment to 
be able to show up as my best self. And part of that was having a support person with me and, you know. How do they respond to that? Fine. Absolutely no worries. If you don't ask, the answer is always no, isn't it? Yes. And again, back to the internalised ableism, I was like, who am I to ask for that? You know, if someone in a wheelchair asked for that, I'd be like, 100%, yes, of course, absolutely. Because you can see the physical disability. Mm -hmm. Mm. But then for me, when I asked for it and, and then I also thought I preach this all the time. In my work, when I'm talking to parents, to schools, to teachers, to children and teaching them to advocate for their needs and I'm teaching them to have a strong sense of self and understanding and be able to say, I need this right now or I need that right now or this is this is where I'm at. I have to walk the walk if I'm going to talk the talk, I right? I can't be hiding behind my own sort of subconscious programming while then trying to tell people to do something different. And I think the more that I can step into that space of really living authentically as myself, even if that means being a bit different to how I thought I would be or how I thought I should be or the parts of me that I created to show up in the world, at least then I can show up and those who are going to resonate and see me for who I am are the right kinds of people that I want to attract into my life and those who don't, don't, and that's okay. I love that you're at that stage of your life. I very much went through a similar transition, even with the people that I work with, using fitness as an example. Mm -hmm. There's days where I can't be bothered. There's days where I'm too busy. There's days where it's way too hectic and things get in the way. For whatever reason, maybe the fish needs to get fed. I don't have a fish, but if I did, he needs to get fed. And I can't. (laughs) My pretend fish needs to get fed. He needs to go for a walk. But you don't want to go to the gym. I can't expect my clients and people that I'm working with to make time to meditate, to prioritise their self-care, to have difficult conversations, to prioritise their needs, to go to the gym when they don't feel like it if I don't do that because there is no authenticity. If I can't make the time and that is my field and it's not a, I'm not living in alignment with those values, how can I expect anyone else to? Mm-hmm. I had that conversation with my, myself a while ago and called myself out on the bullshit story and I make sure that I embody everything that I speak to other people about and I feel so much better for it. In terms of being having your needs met and accommodated for, I think that's often not met well mm-hmm. in most industries. Mm-hmm. And for most people, people expect you to conform. They yes. expect you to align to their standards and their values. So where does this flexibility come into it? Because I know you're very passionate about encouraging people to have that behavioural flexibility mm-hmm. and accommodate for others' needs. How have you been finding that and how do you want to push that agenda? So this has kind of got a few tears to it. One is that I think uh, it's kind of no one's fault that it's not being done well because the same way that I was internally programmed, we all are, right? Mm. So, you know, workplaces, schools, everything, it's being done the way it was always done because that's the way it's always done. And now we're learning more about neurodivergence and stuff like that. And when we know better, we do better. And so part of what I want to do is make people aware of actually what is neurodivergence. So the fact that People automatically usually think of autism and ADHD, generally speaking, but it can include conditions like OCD, bipolar disorder, borderline personality disorder. Are Um, they considered neurodivergency, not mental health disorders? So they are mental health disorders, but they come under the neurodivergent banner because when someone has experienced complex trauma that may have caused borderline personality disorder or whatever, the brain is now working differently. They are processing information differently to a neurotypical mind. Now, if you think about it that way, 
how many people would fall under the neurodivergent category? So many. And I know we were talking about the statistic before and mm-hmm. I think you found out it was 20%. Yeah, something that like if that. If you bring into all those other factors, people that have experienced trauma, mood disorders, mm-hmm. they outnumber the normies. I don't think there are any normies, to be brutally honest, because everyone look, that I worked with is struggling with some sort of issue that would make them neurodivergent. And this is where I hardly know how to put this into words, but like, Imagine if we could create environments, and this is where I would love to, you know, to talk to schools and the education department, but also businesses and corporations, and also just the way we run business-based models. Imagine if we had, if we came at it from a mutual respect for all people, and that people could advocate within reasonable boundaries for what they needed within any one environment. If a person perhaps needs, oh, can we have, can I have dimmer lights in my office when I'm working because that's where I'm going to be most productive? Or can I have um, a standing desk because I need more movement? Or can I have, um, I need regular breaks or I need to move around more, for example. Um, one girl that I worked with in the past, when she did her VCE exams, we accommodated so that she could be in a room by herself, not with her peers, and that someone else would scribe for her and she would respond and she would pace up and down the room and she would verbally give her responses to all the questions. Wow, but if you went back 10, 15 years ago, she wouldn't have been able to sit the exams and she wouldn't have got a grade. Exactly. And it's just an environmental accommodation and it's equity, right? Equity and equality are not the same. Equality is everyone gets the same thing. Equity is everyone gets what they need to be at the same level of participation. Mm. And I think this has to be across schools and across workplaces. Um, And I think while some people might think, oh, my gosh, like making those changes within a school or a workplace would be such a big effort, yes. But then think about the outcome increase Mm. and the potential increased productivity, lack of stress stress leave, lack of sick days, all these other things. If we created fostered environments where people could actually thrive and also use their special interests, right? Like one of the gifts of the neurodivergent mind is when they get that kind of myopic focus or that tunnel vision on something, the intrinsic motivation and the passion is this huge drive. There is a hell of a lot of productivity produced there. What if we actually targeted people to be productive in areas that they were genuinely interested in? Mm. What if we pair people up with the right kinds of things? Um so that they can really like come alive in their job and that fuels their fire. So they're not burning out. Instead, they're getting um, lit up by what it is that they're doing. Yeah. And I guess that's kind of where I found myself, which is why I'm, I'm so, so grateful that I'm so lit up by my work now, right? Because I feel so passionately about changing environments so that children don't have to go through the process I went through where you grow up thinking that there is something fundamentally wrong with you and that you don't know why you can't fit in everywhere. And then I ended up as, you know, a traumatized adult who was trying to undo all this damage. What if it wasn't like that from the beginning? What if children can be raised with a strong sense of self, of belonging, and can like lean confidently into their authenticity and grow up with that rather than growing up? with this trauma. It sounds like an amazing vision. And the only thing I can see, the wall that will be hit mm-hmm. is where people will say, we don't want to give people special treatment. But then again, if someone came in a wheelchair, they're probably going to install a ramp. Uh-huh. If someone's deaf, maybe they'll get someone that is an interpreter using sign language or another language or something like that. They'll accommodate for that, but not when it comes to things like neurodivergency. Mm-hmm. So how do we break the stigma 
because obviously people don't want to – there's stigma for people against themselves. There is stigma 100%. against neurodivergent people. There is a stigma that comes with the label of being autistic, ADHD, and people don't even want to explore those options because they don't come across as Rain Man. Maybe they do fit in with the mask and they are mimicking. So how do you break that down? I was reading an amazing book recently by Devin Price called Unmasking Autism, and one of the things that she stressed in this book – Um, or that they, sorry, expressed in this book was that the more people advocate even just gently for what their needs actually are, even if it's the smallest thing, like when you go into a restaurant, you ask, oh, would you mind if I was just seated kind of where it's not as loud or not as busy, like the smallest thing, because that would genuinely make you more comfortable, Mm -hmm. right? If we made it more normal for people to request something for their own well-being, because I think there's still a little bit of that stigma that like, oh, you know, needy, you know, like, oh, yeah. that's a bit of whatever it is. But if people gently start doing that, then again, we kind of normalize that because, you know, it's human brains, patterns, repeated patterns, we kind of fall into that. It's just what we do. And also monkey see, monkey do. If we see people doing that and it's okay, then they'll start doing that. Um, also, I think, and, and this is like my, my call to action, for people who are neurodivergent, and who perhaps are afraid to speak out about that based on the stigma or if you are someone like me who is outwardly functional and successful and all of the things, I think we need to talk about it and and be open about it where we can because if people keep seeing autistic people as Rain Man, they're going to keep seeing them as Rain Man, right? Mm. We need to see the spectrum. We need to see the range of presentations among this neurology so that we can understand that when we're making accommodations for one person or like the special treatment that you said, we're saying it's okay for you to have your wobble cushion or your standing desk because that's what you need. But then if Joe Blow over there is like they're getting special treatment, then it's like so can you have. Yeah, what do you need? What do you need? And that's where we're opening it up and that's the whole idea about inclusion is that there is no one who's excluded. If you are neurotypical, you are also able to request whatever it is that you need. And I think this is where, you know, my vision goes almost beyond like the neurodiversity side of things or neurodivergence, I should say, was my step into understanding it and understanding the barriers But I think if we embrace neurodiversity, which is the term for any form of neurology, and understand that people are just different and nervous systems are different and our nervous systems are often responding to our previous experiences in life that often people don't know anything about and we're just trying to stay safe. That's all our body's trying to do at all times. And if we come at that from curiosity and compassion to allow people to feel safe and connected within their environments, it seems like a basic human right, right? 100%. (laughs) I love the concept of curiosity because anyone in the helping arrangement that approaches clients, people they interact with in the world with that state of curiosity generally can have a big impact when it comes Mm -hmm. to helping people. My next question in relation to normalising having your needs met or making requests in terms of your needs, does it have to come with an explanation or a justification? Because it seems like a lot of people that are neurodivergent will have to go, can I please have this? Because blah, 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 and feel the need to explain. And a lot a lot of other people that may be in a position where they are being asked to accommodate, they might be reluctant to do so unless they have a reason to do so. But do you think it's needed? This is something that I have been considering. 
I would love to think that we can get to a place where it's not mm. and where, you know, for example, say you get a new job and as part of your contract when you're signing your, your agreement, there's a section that says, do you have any requirements? Mm. You know, like, and it simply might be, oh, I, you know, prefer a, a standing desk or, or, you know, sort of my brain goes straight to more sensory kind of elements because they're the easiest to kind of describe, like yeah. if it's an environmental factor. But it could also be that, say, you're someone who struggles with a lot of social interaction or busy environments. You may prefer to work at home part time mm. or more than part time. You may like there are so many different options now. And I think it would be great if that was just a question. What do you prefer? Like, how are you going to be the most productive? How do I give you autonomy over your own sense of self to be able to advocate for what you need? Currently, I think, unfortunately, there is still that requirement of like, I need this because that. Obviously, we see it in our funding systems uh, for, you know, getting support and all that kind of stuff. And we have to like prove how disabled we are. It's that simple. That's literally what we have to do to get support. Um, And I think for a lot of workplaces and schools, there is still that. Unfortunately, in the education department, schools still have to prove how dysfunctional a child is across certain domains to get extra funding for an aid, for example. But if we shook up the system from the top and we just created what what I would refer to as inclusive classrooms, so the classroom, for example, just had options for other sensory experiences like wobble cushions or wobble stools or standing desks or opportunities to work inside and outside or opportunities to work in a darker environment or opportunities to work with noise-cancelling headphones. Like if that was just part of education because we understood that human beings process information differently, there wouldn't be the need to talk about how disabled someone was in order to get them this support because it just would be. A the thing. resources were already there. Yeah. And there was already that acceptance. I wanted to ask you in terms of labelling because obviously you've been worked with a lot of young people who have the labels mm-hmm. and you are yourself, you got diagnosed later in life. Mm-hmm. Where are labels helpful and where are they unhelpful? Because I know even looking at mental health disorders, Mm -hmm. people go, I can't do this because of my depression or my anxiety or I have this particular problem. So they start ticking all the criteria that come with it the minute they get a label and it becomes this limitation where they're not really looking at exploring strengths. It's like, I can't do that because of my this. I'm diagnosed as this, so I'm I'm not as that. And it can, to an extent, become an excuse, not only, only to themselves, a justification as to why they can't do certain things, but to other people, sometimes for poor behaviour. So where is it helpful and where isn't? I think, again, for me, it was most helpful in terms of answering a lot of questions. And obviously I'd been given a bipolar diagnosis. I'd been given a BPD diagnosis because I'd had a really long history of particularly struggles with anxiety and depression myself um, earlier in my life. And, like, ongoing still, you know, it's something that I, I do manage. Um I laughed at a thing the other day. Someone said, oh, you know, do you struggle with with anxiety? And I was like, no, I rock the hell out of anxiety, actually. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, But I think it can be helpful in terms of finding like a root cause for something. But I think then where we need to shift is our therapeutic approaches. So to be a neurodivergent affirming practitioner, we are strengths-based all the way. And we assume capability we assume that this person can do something until we are proven otherwise we make no judgment calls straight up that someone can't do this or they can't do that or we don't do that and we come at it from a place of 
What do you love? What lights you up? And if someone's saying, I can't do this because of my depression or anxiety or whatever, my approach would be, what can you do? Where can I meet you? And then I find you there and we work on the things that make you feel good and light you up. And that's where we expand from. Because I think a lot of the time that limiting mindset, yes, can be directly related to the condition that they have, but I think also it can be a blanket to allow that person some security to escape from the demands that they've felt for so long, which has often been a form of masking, right? So then it's like, oh, now I have a reason to stop and to hide and to heal. And so if we also look at the reasons behind someone may, why someone may be uh, expressing like, I can't do that because of my depression or whatever. Why are they using that? What's the reason underneath? And again, back to curiosity, compassion and empathy, coming at it from that lens using a strengths-based focus, shifting the mindset to capabilities and possibilities, and also adapting the environment back to that again. And I think that applies to mental health stuff as well. How can we, rather than try and change the person, how can we change the situation, the people around them, the environment, so that they feel more connected and safe to begin participating, even if it's like a little step at a time? Yeah, that's amazing. I know looking at environment, safety is such an important element, whether you're looking at trauma or any, just for Mm. any person in general, when they have that operating base of feeling safe they can thrive and they can step into pretty much anything they want and that's where real changes can happen strength-based coaching is vital so many people get caught up in the weaknesses and they're always trying to put out fires but i believe the true outliers in any field whether it's finance business sports anything like that they find their strengths and they run with it. They don't do the same thing that every other person is doing. They yeah. find their unique qualities in the way that they perceive things and they turn that into an absolute superpower and then they lead from the very top. They're the ones that change things. They're the ones that invented the wheel. They invented fire. Mm-hmm. They invented all these other things because they did something different and they explored it. That's just my personal belief anyway. They're the game changers in the world. So I love that you're shining a light on those things as a superpower. So to parents out there and even adults that might be diagnosed, maybe considering after this Mm -hmm. conversation that they might be undiagnosed neurodivergent, how can they get over the limitations that they, they might be real or simply perceived and how can they find their strengths? How can they turn that into an absolute superpower to live happy, compassionate, fulfilling, successful lives? I think the first thing is to acknowledge the grief piece that comes for parents when their child gets a diagnosis and then also for individuals who get a diagnosis. And unfortunately, the grief piece is attached to expectations, which we talked about in the beginning, which are put on us by society. So there is this process of grieving the, in inverted commas, normalcy that we wanted for ourselves or our children Um, And I think that needs to be validated, right? So it's like, this is okay and it's an okay process. And I help people through this a lot because again, we have to meet people where they're at. But then what I like to explore is what I call autistic gifts or as Chloe Hayden, who is an autistic um, actress and she wrote a beautiful book called Different Not Less. Everyone should read it. Um, Different Not Less, I love that. She says the gleam in the eye. Oh, no, eye sparkles, sorry. She calls them eye sparkles. You know when someone's doing something that lights them up, you can see it in their eyes? Find what that is Mm. for either yourself or your child, the children you work with. Foster that fuel, fire, passion, and let everything lead from there. Because chances are, even if your child is non-speaking, right, even if, you know, your child has higher support needs that come with their diagnosis or whatever, there is 
there is meaning and purpose within that person. Like I, I am quite a spiritual person myself. And, you know, I love that you're talking about meditation and I do all of that kind of stuff. And, and I really believe uh, that everyone comes onto this planet for this human experience with a purpose and a reason why they're showing up the way they are. Mm. And I think sometimes our little neurodivergent souls that are coming in are here to just shake the grounds a little bit and and make us change the way we operate. And it's funny that you mentioned the wheel and, you know, Einstein and, and you know, like the light bulb. And, yeah, and then all the normies go, that's a great idea and it gets adopted as commonalities. Exactly. But it's, uh, they've made the game change. Exactly. It's, so it's, I think we need to find that piece for these in, the individual people and allow that to be fostered. So rather than taking someone and being like, you're different, I'm going to change you. I want to find someone who's different. I want to shine a light on that. And I want to be like, how can I learn from you? And how can I, how can I foster this? And this is literally the approach I take in all of my therapy, whether it's with children or adults. Um, but I think the first step for all of us to make that a reality is to continue to raise awareness of what neurodivergence actually is mm. because isn't. I think there's still exactly I think there's still so many misconceptions and then also how you can be a neurodivergent ally how you can support support other people whether you know however you identify that's a great mindset and approach to take because you're looking at opportunities you're looking at things to be grateful for you're not focusing on the lack focusing on, you know, these might be some limitations here. Maybe I struggle with this particular area, but I'm really strong in these areas. And this particular area doesn't seem like work to me. It feels like an amazing opportunity and I thrive and I could be called obsessed with that. And then <laughs> just go at it like a bull at a gate and it lights them up and they live a very happy, purposeful life. And I think that's relative to anyone, but yep. helping, I think everyone should be in that pursuit to find that. I do a lot of work with people finding their purpose mm -hmm. and exploring what lights them up to find that thing that they can obsess over so that it's not work. Yeah. Personally, for me, nothing that I do is work. It's literally aligned with my personal and professional life. I would do it all anyway. I love doing it, even with this show. And I learn something every time and I've thoroughly enjoyed this chat. So with a parent, what is it? Trial and error? Just put them into different activities, find that thing that gives them that sparkle in the eye. What should you be, what should they be doing? Um, usually I find that children will show you what it is that is of interest to them and depending on the age of the child sometimes they will do repeated activities because it gives them some form of sensory input that they're seeking but it will always give us a place to start so generally what what I will do when I'm first getting to know a child and most of my work now is sort of more coaching capacity but um I will engage with them and I will copy what they do like whatever they want to do within an environment even if it seems nonsensical to me or to onlookers I will copy that and engage in the activity exactly the way they are and I'll experience it as much as I can the way they are and try to be very curious about what are you getting out of this experience? What is this bringing you? What are you needing? And a lot of the time the first point is, as we said before, to regulate the nervous system because a regulated nervous system can learn. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the time, particularly neurodivergent people, are not regulated because our, our world isn't designed to regulate our nervous systems, right? Um so I would be getting very curious and playing a bit of a detective around what are the things that my child chooses to do, to feel, to be, to eat, to whatever, when they have choice. <sighs> and then take that as, okay, what does that give them? How does that fuel them in some way? How does that interest them? And then see if you can join it. If they line up their blocks, sit next to them line up their blocks because when we build a sense of connection between two people that is more important than anything else that we can provide for someone 
you know, like, yeah, it's, it, you know, we might be like, oh, no, they're lining up their toys. I want them to play this way. That's all gone out the window, right? We have to start embracing autistic play, the, the recognition of patterns and the amazing skills that are actually being built when children do ritualistic and repetitive play that we used to gear them away from. We're now realising they're learning so much from doing that. Like, mm-hmm. let them do that. That's how their brain is learning. Um, so I'd say as much as possible, join your child, join them where they're at, and then if you find something that they do love but you want to expand it a little bit, like try bringing something into that. It's like when you were saying before about if you find something someone is, can obsess over and absolutely love, what is it about that that is so engaging? And then can you take pieces of that to this other thing that they kind of have to do because they're a grown-up but they don't really want to? Mm. But can we use the strength that we found here and apply it to other things? It's kind of the same with a child. I hope that makes sense. It's a bit abstract because there's no clear-cut way. So I can relate that to many people that employ feelings or exercises of mindfulness doing tedious tasks like dishwashing. Mm-hmm. So being mindful of that present moment and bringing that situational awareness and being present in the process. And it's not, oh, I have to do the dishes. <laughs> it's actually a mindful activity. Yeah. So yes, yeah, stacking things like that is a very unique approach. So many people expect people to conform. That's bosses, parents. They view their kids as They've got bad behavior. They're not sitting upright at the table. They're not doing this. They're interrupting. They're not cleaning their room. How can we cultivate this acceptance but still get things done? Because mm-hmm. for a busy parent, maybe the parent's neurodivergent as well. They've got bills to pay, mouths to feed, pressures in their own life. And you know, they've just got to get their kid to school. Or they've got other things that have to be done because they're late for a presentation or something like that. How can they manage those things while still being accepting and embracing of a neurodivergent child or a partner, someone that might have a neurodivergent partner. Yeah. So again, this is, in my experience, it is quite unique to each individual family. But as a general rule, what I would say, if we're talking about a child right now, I would say if you look into something called gentle parenting, and this can be applied for parenting or for teachers or anyone who's kind of working to support a child, it has this idea that we have choice and control within a range and then we have what's called loving limits. So obviously you can't let your child just run out onto the road because that's what they want to do in this moment mm-hmm. because it's our responsibility to keep them safe. So sometimes even using uh, – so firstly, co-regulation is so important. So if we can keep our system regulated when our child is potentially um, behaving in a certain way or responding in a certain way, that is the key thing. So, I mean, this is a whole other chat for another day, but the importance of parent – being able to regulate themselves and learn about their own nervous system is one thing. But I would say saying to a child something like, I can see your feeling and name the feeling, uncomfortable, frustrated, whatever it is, however they're responding. I'm here to listen and I'm here to help you. So we're validating, we're providing safety and we're providing support. And then we add the loving limit. But I can't let you hit your sister because it's my job to keep you and her safe. And then you keep reiterating the same thing by keeping your tone, you know, like, present and calm and encouraging co-regulation and eventually children will become uh, compliant I hate the word compliant but children at their core are loving and willing Mm. and when they're not being that it's because they're dysregulated yeah as a general rule we've had so much talk about co-regulation in a parenting child relationship even in residential care working with people that have trauma regulation is such an important aspect you brought up so many topics we're going to have to have you back again as we have <laughs> run out of time i told you it would go very quickly yes it did but how can people get in contact with you um so there's a few different ways um i'm probably most active on my instagram which is just 
um, at SGR Occupational Therapy. I got clearly creative with my business name. Um, I My website is www.sgroccupationaltherapy.com. Um, I have a Facebook page called uh, SGR Holistic and Family Focused Occupational Therapy. And then there's also a group that I've created on Facebook, which is called the Neurodiversity Empowerment Movement. If anyone is interested in joining that, um, Rowan has joined the group and it's just some beautiful conversations. And I am the spiritual OT on uh, YouTube. I'm like, what's that thing with the videos Um, where I've just been interviewing different people um, about neurodivergence. So that's thank you very much, Steph. We will have you back if you'd like to come back. I thoroughly enjoyed the conversation. Thank you, everyone. We will see you next week. Hello, I'm Con. And I'm Steph. And And we're Eddie Nucky. You're listening to Radio Karam. If you're the caraway, just call Mitchell Tall. Or in Patterson Lace, just call Mitchell Tall. Anywhere Bayside, just call Mitchell Tall. Buy a summer house, just call Mitchell Tall. Mitchell Tall. Real estate. Oh yeah, little real estate. We want more. <laughs> One take!